If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, August the 5th, 2022. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Guy Benson Show, and happy Friday to all of you. Glad to have you here. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, that's every single weekday, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. It's always on demand right there at your fingertips as soon as the show is over. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram, that would be our social media footprint. You can follow us there if you would like. I'm coming to you live from Nashville, Tennessee today, here for a wedding. Looking forward to that this evening and tomorrow, but can't wait to spend these next three hours with all of you. Here's the lineup. Peter Ducey will be here, our Fox News colleague, coming up. In about half an hour from now, White House correspondent, he'll be joining us. In the next hour, Dr. Mark Siegel on COVID, on monkeypox, a lot to get to with the doctor. ESPN's Jeff Passan will be here on a very eventful week in Major League Baseball. And then U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn. How could we not have Senator Blackburn on while we are here in her state? So uh, we are pretty packed today on the program, and I'd like to begin on the issue of immigration. There's a very interesting battle playing out right now between the mayor of New York City and the governor of Texas. So Eric Adams is the Democratic mayor of New York, and he's been, along with Mayor Bowser in D.C., complaining and bellyaching about Texas and Arizona as well, sending on buses a bunch of illegal immigrants, not that many, right? In the scheme of things, it's a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket of what they're experiencing at the border. But sending at this point thousands of illegal immigrants, almost all to Washington, D.C. so far, then some of them travel from D.C. up to New York. So you've got these two blue city mayors whining and complaining about how overwhelming this is for their cities and how they don't have the resources or the space to take in these people. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. Is that a problem for you guys? You don't like this? All these people showing up in your jurisdiction who shouldn't be there and you don't have the resources to deal with them? That is an indictment of the Biden administration and the border crisis, not of the Republican governors who are giving you just a little taste, just like a little thumbnail sketch of what their communities and their states have been dealing with month in and month out every day. So the stunt that Abbott started and Ducey's joined on has been, and I've made this point, much more successful than I expected. With these mayors sort of like losing their minds and using all these very dramatic but accurate words like, you know, humanitarian crisis, it's a 
breaking point. This cannot continue. It's unsustainable. Bring in the National Guard. I see that Mayor Bowser in D.C. is asking for the National Guard, and a bunch of left-wing activist groups are mad at her for that because they don't want any enforcement. They just don't like enforcement. They just live in a magical world where you have sanctuary cities. Both of those cities are sanctuary cities. They should welcome all of these people. We are sanctuary cities. We are so enlightened. We are so compassionate. Come, bring us your huddled masses, right? They love sort of going through all of the rhetoric and the preening and the sort of signaling. But being a sanctuary city seems to get a little bit less fun when it's not all talk. Right? These people are fine with the border crisis. They're fine to make it sound like, oh, this is like so cruel. Cruel and mean and bigoted of these nasty Republicans to talk about enforcement all the time. Until it becomes less political and less hypothetical to them and much more real. And that's what's happening. And it's fascinating to watch. So Eric Adams is complaining that it's all sort of a trick. Because what's happening is they're asking some of the migrants, where do you want to go? He's like, of course they want to come to New York. He's calling this a setup by Texas. This is amazing. Listen to Cut 16, Mayor Adams. No matter where you are in the globe, no one, if you're asking someone that's just came to America, or where would you like to go? They're not going to say Idaho. They're not going to say, you know, they're going to say the city that everyone knows. They're going to say New York, you know. And so you basically set us up and, you know, This is a real crisis. Yeah, it is a real crisis. Of course it's a real crisis. It's been a giant historic crisis at the border for a year and a half, incentivized at every step by the Biden administration. To this day, record-shattering month after month. July is going to be a disaster when those numbers come in as well. They basically set us up. It's a setup, says Adams. (laughs) It's amazing. Just amazing. So Abbott responding... In Cut 17, this is with Jesse Waters saying, okay, uh, let's think about this just a little bit more deeply. Listen. Public officials across the country, they do need to realize the magnitude of the chaos created by Biden's open border policies. They're up in arms about a few thousand people coming into their communities over the past few months. Listen, in any one sector in the state of Texas, we have more than 5,000 people come across that sector every single day. And so, listen, we're full in the state of Texas. Our communities are overrun. And I started busing people to Washington, D.C., when local officials could not handle the number of people that had come across our border. Yeah, it's like, welcome to our world and not even close to what we're experiencing. You're just getting like a little sneak preview of it. And they can't handle it in New York and in Washington. And it's interesting because... Adams had been claiming wrongly that these red state governors were busing people directly into New York. That actually had not been the case. They were sending them just to Washington, D.C., belly of the beast, where the policies are getting made, where the White House is, where the Democratic Congress is allergic to doing anything really serious on enforcement. So they were sending them to D.C. About 6,000 have shown up since April. But Adams was, you know, attacking Texas Like, the problem isn't the crisis. The problem is the Republicans so rudely forcing Democrats to see the crisis for themselves, up close and personal. Because they said, no, Bowser and Adams were invited by Abbott. Come to the border. See what's happening. Learn something here. They both said no. 
And Abbott's like, okay, well, if you're going to accuse us of busing people to New York, a sanctuary city just like D.C., and these Democratic politicians just slap each other on the back, high-five each other, congratulate each other for being so progressive with the sanctuary status, he's like, okay, good idea, Mayor Adams. We're going to start sending buses directly to New York as well. And the first one arrived today. And shockingly, Mayor Adams doesn't like that. Isn't that weird? What does sanctuary mean, sir? Cut 18. Here's Adams. I just wonder, does he hear himself? Does he go back and watch the clip and say, I wonder if I'm making the point that I think that I'm making? Again, cut 18. Listen here. The Texas governor invited us to the border. Uh, What the Texas governor should do is invite those who were trying to find housing in his state to give them housing instead of uh, sending them here. It's amazing. He's like, well, the governor invited me down to the border, but what he should do is provide all the resources for all these illegal immigrants down there. If they want housing, Texas should give it to them. Don't send them here. It's, we, we can't do that here. We, we don't have the resources here. Just do it there. He's basically saying this illegal immigration problem that these Democrats, I'm, I'm sorry, just de facto they support it. If you are not actively fighting the border crisis on a regular basis, you are complicit in it. And especially if you're presiding over a sanctuary city and you're very proud of it, you're part of the problem. And the solution is, no, I don't want to see the problem. We don't really want the problem here. Uh, did, do we, we didn't say that, did we? No, we're all the way up here in the Northeast. You deal with that down to sort of in that icky part of the country, and uh, we'll, we'll applaud it from a distance. Thank you very much. You handle it, Texas. That's the message not even implied explicit there from Mayor Adams. It's, just, it's not, not a good point, Mr. Mayor. And here's Abbott responding, cut 19. The cartels are not looking for housing in Texas. Actually, the cartels that are coming through Texas, they are actually trying to get to New York where they can distribute the fentanyl that they're bringing across the border. And the Biden administration is telling a lot of these immigrants who are processed, all right, now we will send you wherever you want to go. The final leg of the cartel journey in human smuggling and trafficking is completed by the Biden administration at taxpayer expense It is a disgrace. Now, there's a piece in the New York Times that dovetails perfectly with all of this, where they describe in the Times the, quote, havoc being caused by Republicans, right? The Republican governors. They're the havoc causers. Certainly not the havoc at the border. Certainly not the chaos and dysfunction and meltdown at the border caused by Biden's policies. No, it is the very rude reaction of the Republicans, That's the havoc causer here. The Times reports a political tactic by the governors of Texas and Arizona to offload the problems caused by record levels of immigration at the border is beginning to hit home in Washington. I love how it's like, oh, yeah, offload the problem. They've been dealing with it every freaking day, you guys, for a year and a half, and you guys don't care. And the people in charge in Washington, D.C. don't care. The whole point of the stunt, the political tactic, is to make you care. And it's working. Hundreds of undocumented migrants arriving on the governor's free bus rides each week increasingly tax the capital's ability to provide emergency food and housing. With no money and no family to receive them, the migrants are overwhelming immigrant nonprofits and other volunteer groups, with many ending up in homeless shelters or on park benches. Is that bad? 
Like, look, I don't want to be too flippant about this. This is sad for these people. A lot of them are just desperate trying to make a better life. They don't have a right to be here, though. But they're, like, painting this, oh, look, these people are showing up, and the, the, the local communities that they're being sent to can't really take them in, and a lot of them are becoming homeless, and these, these nonprofit groups can't handle it anymore. This is a drop in the bucket of the larger problem. If you're outraged and upset by this tiny, minuscule example of what's happening in D.C. and New York, you should be really upset about what's happening at the border and has been happening. But they don't. They don't care. They haven't cared. This is why I think this has been actually such a brilliant, shrewd move by Abbott, and I'm glad that Ducey got on board as well. This influx has prompted Mariel Bowser, Washington's Democratic mayor, to ask the Defense Department to send in the National Guard. That request has infuriated organizations that have been assisting the migrants. So these are the pro-illegal immigration organizations who want illegal immigration to keep happening, but they do don't have the ability to take in all the people, but they certainly don't want any enforcement. It's just, again, it's just magical thinking of what they think is possible and what is good. So they then talk about New York City and Mayor Adams talking about all these emergency measures, how they're trying to build shelter capacity. There's been a 10% growth in the homeless population in New York City. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas and Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona, both Republicans, blame President Biden for record numbers of migrants crossing the southern border. Yeah, they do. Correctly. Cities along the border in Texas and Arizona have at times been overwhelmed with a surge in unauthorized border crossings. That's one way of putting it. They have not at times been overwhelmed. It has been an overwhelming crush for a year and a half. And it takes this type of thing to finally get the attention of some people in the elite corporate media to finally do what Bill Malugin does, for example, here at Fox every day. But because it's at their doorstep, suddenly it's a problem. But it's not really a problem with Biden or the crisis itself. It's just these havoc wreaking Republicans. It's always their problem. State officials in Texas and Arizona have been greeting many of the migrants after their release from U.S. Border Patrol, offering them free bus rides to Washington in a bid to force the federal government to take responsibility for what they say is a failed immigration system. What else would you call it if not a failed system? We've had close to two million encounters at the border in the last couple of fiscal years. We're approaching a million gotaways in fiscal year 21 and 22. A million. We will be there pretty soon. Of course it's failed. It's the federal government's job. They're not doing it. Then they demonize states and sue them when the states try to do something about it. That's not your purview. That's not your job. That's the federal government's job. Then the feds do nothing or the feds incentivize all of this and the feds don't let law enforcement do their job and put out memos and create policies that basically effectively encourage open borders. And then if the states do anything to highlight that problem, that is just totally out of control. That's, you know, like political stuntery by the Republicans. That's, that's sort of the way that these rules work, apparently. And you've got to flip the script somehow, and that's what these governors are doing, and it's been quite effective. Now, there's another side to this, a sadder side, a scarier side as well. 
that we will get to a new revelation that you need to hear about on the border crisis. That statistic, as soon as we come back, it's the Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Friday. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I think one of the frustrations in the wider immigration debate is that on the left and the lax enforcement or anti-enforcement left, they really believe that they are the compassionate, better people. Right? They are the ones who are enlightened, unlike all these, unlike all these you know, benighted, nasty right-wingers who want to do things like enforce the border and protect American sovereignty, and isn't that awful? And so they kind of frame their arguments in these sweeping moral terms like they are on the right side of history, and it's just cruel to support enforcement. But actually the cruelty in my mind is the incentivizing of people to go on a very dangerous journey, send their kids into the hands of cartels, fueling a bunch of money, by the way, and just funneling it into these deadly drug cartels to try to cross the border and come to the United States, which is far too often a journey that is marred by sexual abuse, violence, and death. So in the last two years, there's been quite a lot of death along the border. These are migrant deaths at the border. An exclusive from the Washington Examiner, 173 bodies of migrants have been recovered in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas since October. 154 in Del Rio. This according to federal data obtained by the Examiner. The last year of Trump's administration, 2020, there were 247 migrant deaths at the border. 247, still a very sad number. But in 2021, under Biden, that went up to 566. It more than or roughly doubled. Then 2022, as of mid-July, it's 609. That's more than 1,000, well more than 1,000 migrant deaths at the border on Biden's watch. That is cruelty. Incentivizing this is cruelty. And they continue to do it. There's no excuse. It's a public health, it's a public safety threat, and it's a threat to the migrants themselves. Peter Ducey up next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Happy Friday. Thanks for listening. 
GuyBensonShow.com, podcasts always free. And joining us now, our first guest of the day is Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent. Peter, good to have you as always. Hey, happy Friday, Guy. I want to start with this. Uh, President Biden, at least as of yesterday, we're told still testing positive for COVID, right? So he had COVID a couple weeks ago. Then he took Paxlovid. He recovered. He tested negative. Then there was this sort of rebound, which happened sometimes, and he has been in isolation ever since. Do we have any update today? I will ask Dr. Siegel maybe next hour. Is this unusual? Because it's been a while now that he's been battling COVID. He tested positive again this afternoon. We had been led to believe from Dr. Fauci uh, ahead of time when the president was sick and taking Paxlovid that it was possible for a rebound case, but that it was very unlikely. And yet here we are, sixth day in a row that the president has tested positive for for COVID again, the second time. So we know of at least 13 days in the last two and a half weeks that he's had a positive test. I, and they say that he's not going to leave to go anywhere, leave the White House until he tests negative, which I, it's kind of an uncharted uh, territory with these what the travel rules are, uh, because as we've known for years now, it, people can test positive for a long time, uh, even if they're not infectious. But they right. are claiming that he's not going to leave until he has a negative test. So uh, maybe that's tomorrow. Maybe it's a little while longer. Don't know. Are they telling you that he's still feeling fine? Because I know some of the, if there's, uh, you know, at least in some of these days, they say like he has virtually no symptoms at all. I, they're saying that his cough has almost completely resolved. Uh, but these notes from the doctor are very inconsistent. Two days ago, it said that he did a light workout, which he enjoyed. And that hasn't been in the reports yesterday or today. It just says he's up there working. And so we're led to believe from the doctor uh, who is treating him that he's doing better, but still positive for COVID. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, you have been answering or asking rather a number of questions, as is your job, as is your want at some of these press briefings. And you got into it a little bit yesterday with John Kirby, who's kind of almost like the uh, de facto secondary press secretary at this point, almost like a, a goalie 1A and 1B in hockey where you can't decide who the starter is. So they're kind of platooning the thing. I know it's still technically Corrine Jean-Pierre, but they've got Kirby out there an awful lot. And I know they're saying it's because it's national security stuff, so they want him briefing on that. But, you know, he, he generally, I think, is more coherent and smooth than she is. I think she is perhaps a lovely person, but is very bad at this job. You don't have to comment on that. My impression watching her from a distance, you have a lot more up close and personal interaction with her uh, by nature of your work. But you asked a question about what the president was doing and not doing with some of his time since he's in isolation, not going anywhere. And Kirby took exception to the way that you asked one of these questions. Listen to cut nine. 
I know you said that there is not a, a <laughs> call scheduled with Xi. Is there a reason why? Because President Biden's known him for decades. Yeah. He's got a lot of free time up there in the residence this week. He doesn't have free time. He, he's, is there a he's, reason he can't he's, just pick up the phone and he's call? He's been working all the way through his illness, quite frankly, Peter. So that's a little bit insulting. And um, as for a it's call, it is. To, to it is. So he said it was insulting. You can address that in a moment. But he also jumped down the throat of another reporter. He was upset about something else in Cut 10 also yesterday. You said that our policy towards China has been consistent. Your name is Simon, right? Yeah, I really want Simon? To ask you a Simon? I'm Simon? I'm Simon. to ask you this question. Simon. If, if you allow me to ask you the question. Sir, I'm going to call on this man. Now, sir, listen now. I've been polite to you. But I expect a little bit of respect in return. You know, you know where we are is the White House press briefing room, and you need to be more respectful. I'm going to call on this reporter. All right, so a little surly, uh, a little, a little grumpy, perhaps yesterday from Kirby. He didn't lose his temper, but he thought you were out of line. He called the other guy disrespectful. Was there something in the water at the White House yesterday, Peter? I I don't know about that, but. I wasn't trying to suggest that the president isn't doing anything. I was mostly just kind of pointing out that, uh, like pretty much everybody in that room knows who has had to quarantine for 10 days or five days, whatever it was when people have tested positive, uh, you have a lot of free time when you're in your house. That's just the nature of public health guidelines right now. Uh, you get sent home. You're not supposed to leave. You got free time. Uh, I was asking why he can't call this person, this Chinese president that he's known since long before he was president. They've traveled the world together. And, uh, you know, they they do uh, something else that I was thinking about after that exchange. They make a point to say, and this kind of ties together the, the first two topics that we've discussed um, they make a point to say that he's up there working really hard. But is that a good idea if he still has COVID? Is he ever going to – is that the fastest way to get better is to be up there – if he's up there strenuously executing the duties of his office? I, I don't know. Yeah. And is he doing that? I mean, is he really working hard 24-7 or he can pick up a phone and make a call? And that's the thing that strikes me, Peter, about that exchange. And then another one that I'm going to play here in a second, this one with Jean-Pierre. It seemed like Kirby wanted to make an issue out of a particular phrase that you used in asking a question about a serious point. He wanted to focus on the phrasing really rather than the substance. And that's what Jean-Pierre also did on Pelosi's trip. To Taiwan, you were making the point correctly that it really seems like a lot of Republicans have much have been much more vocally supportive of Speaker Pelosi than the White House had. And you could even say the White House was trying to prevent her from making this trip. And she decided to home in on a word that you use to try to kind of make some cringy jokes about it, dancing around the actual point of the question itself at least that's how i heard it cut 11 people can listen to this and make a decision how come republicans seem more jazzed about speaker pelosi's trip than the president you're gonna have to ask republicans i jazz well, yeah, I mean, do they have jazz hands peter 
Do I have jazz hands? Do they have jazz hands? You said jazz, that they're feeling jazz. We can have our Hill team check. Is President Biden just worried about hurting Xi's feelings? I, I'm, so you're saying because they said that, then we're not jazzed? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We've been very clear. We've been very clear for, gosh, the past week or so um, that uh, the speaker has the right to go to Taiwan. We have said right. that. It's been clear that she has, she a, has right. a right. But why is it so hard for the president just to say, she's a brave trailblazer, and I think it's great that she went. Like, so many I think, others I think the, on... The president thinks that the Speaker Pelosi is a, is a great trailblazer. So, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the at the point of the question was, is the opposition party so much stronger on this issue than the president of Speaker Pelosi's own party? And it goes to the reported developments that the Chinese government uh, was trying to bully Pelosi into not going, and that the Biden administration was kind of sort of doing the same thing as well. I'm going to take a quick break and continue this discussion with Peter Ducey right after this, and we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson. We are back with Peter Ducey, who almost has to run. But, Peter, right before the break, we played that clip of your exchange with Corinne Jean-Pierre yesterday. She focused in on the word jazz and sort of this awkward joking about jazz hands. Wasn't the point of the question, which she seemed to sidestep. Just want to let you react to that soundbite. Well, White House officials keep telling us when we ask about this Pelosi trip and whether it was even worth it, uh, for her to go now that it's like superpowers on the brink of war and all they say is we have been clear she had the right to go well they haven't been clear in expressing what the president thinks about any of this and she's already gone so it's not a safety issue where they need to protect the itinerary to avoid potential threats while the speaker's abroad she went she had her meetings and she's gone. She'll be back at the Capitol soon. But they just will not tell us anything about whether or not all of this trouble was for a purpose, good, advancing U.S. policy, or whether it was for nothing. And, uh, right. you know, she's got a lot of – this is the one thing, the one issue like ever that she's got a bunch of Republicans on her side and she's got the president just kind of – Bowing out. Peter Ducey at the White House, our Fox News correspondent there. Peter, always appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Guy. So, and, and I think that's really that latter point, of course, is what Peter was getting at in his question. The opposition supporting Speaker Pelosi, reportedly the administration not only not supporting her, but trying behind the scenes to maneuver, perhaps even with some of these leaks, to get her not to go. And for them to keep saying, oh, we have been consistently clear that she has the right to go, that's actually not what anyone's asking. I don't think there's a single person in a high-ranking government office in the United States saying that Pelosi did not have the right to go to Taiwan, as many members of Congress and both parties have done through the years. She's not the first speaker to have gone to Taiwan either. That's not the question. And I think it's usually a tell when a press flack answers a question over and over again that they're actually not being asked 
or trying to steer it back to something non-controversial when the point of the question is something else. And I guess, in my view, the sort of clumsy way that she tried to deal with it was seizing on Peter's use of the word jazzed and trying to sort of turn that into something lighthearted or funny and get caught up in that rather than dealing in any meaningful way with the substance of what he was asking. And by the way, I far be it for me to tell Peter how to do his job. I would, I'll send a little note, would be interested to hear what the White House would say if they are pressed on the question. This goes back to our show yesterday. Much of the first hour was spent on the absolute failure of this administration on monkeypox and vaccines and just one huge misstep after another. And I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that on the podcast. It's free, GuyBensonShow.com. A lot of the monologue posted on YouTube as well. I tweeted it. I put it on my Facebook page. You can find it in my town hall piece about it today. You can watch that monologue on YouTube. I would like to know, does the Biden administration, and specifically, does the President of the United States still have confidence in HHS Secretary Javier Becerra? and his job performance in that role. He should have never been named to that role in the first place. He had no public health experience or expertise at all. He was a lawyer and a politician for his whole life. That's it. And they admitted it was just like widely reported. He was put in there because they wanted more Hispanics to make the cabinet and the new administration incoming more diverse, to look more like America. And they did it in a very lazy way and put it, wholly unqualified person in that crucial position in the middle of a pandemic. I said all this stuff yesterday as well. And he has been criticized from within the administration in leaks and background quotes now for months. The big story six or seven months ago on this, he's still in the position. There was no accountability on any of that. They were calling him like this invisible secretary who wasn't doing his job and wasn't showing up properly. And part of my point is, You know, what can the guy really be expected to do? He doesn't know what he's doing. That was obvious to anyone when he was picked for the job for reasons other than stuff that he knows about, right? He was picked for completely different diversity-related reasons. So I think it's hard to hold that against him when he, I think according to everyone, who would admit at least in a moment of candor privately, he's not the right person for the job because he doesn't have the skill set or the background even close to do the job. And what that job mandates and requires and demands, especially in a highly sensitive, once-in-a-lifetime pandemic scenario. Like that made that, that pick even less defensible. And the Senate Democrats just sailed him right through in that confirmation. I would like to know, coming back to the point here with Peter Ducey, I would like to know, does the president still have confidence in Javier Becerra at HHS? Because based on these background quotes and the buzz to reporters behind the scenes, they haven't had confidence in him really ever. And now HHS has come out and bungled badly monkeypox on top of everything else. And the longer you have someone who's not qualified, who shouldn't be anywhere near the job, in the job anyway, and the job is something that important that affects the public health, affects the health of Americans, in this case of a disproportionately harmed, marginalized community, you are increasing the likelihood of more harm being done so long as the inept, incompetent, unqualified person is still running 
the federal health arm, right? I mean, that should be fairly obvious. And when I, and I ran through in the mono yesterday, just the concrete verifiable examples of failure that have happened on monkeypox, on Biden and Becerra's watch, I would love to know, are they willing to say that Biden still has confidence in Becerra's leadership? Because if they do, that would be really damning. They absolutely should not have any confidence remaining in the HHS secretary. But because it's politics, maybe they have like they feel compelled to say, oh, yes, the president still has confidence. And then then it's like, OK, why? Where does that what is the source of that confidence, given everything that we now know has been happening just on monkeypox alone? And if you want some of those details, read my piece at townhall.com today. Go back and listen to the monologue from yesterday. It is bad. It is not justifiable. You can't really rationalize it away. It's just a failed result. And will those failures will be having real consequences for the health of real people for months now. Because of that incompetence. So that's one follow-up question maybe for Monday that I'd love someone to ask. And it might take a guy like Peter Ducey or, you know, Jackie Heinrich, someone who is not from the sort of legacy pro-Democrat media, to ask that kind of question. I'm sure the White House would rather talk about the jobs report today. Pretty good jobs report, right? They blew out expectations, more than a half million jobs created in July not even, you know, way, way better than the experts were anticipating. And it's like, hey, look, this is great. And look, that is a very good number. And it does cut against the idea that we're in some sort of deep recession. We're in a recession. That's the definition. I've been saying you can call it a recession with some bright spots. Jobs has been one of those bright spots, like the employment picture, for a while. But there are some downsides, too. The labor force contracted. That's weird. Real wages down again because of inflation. Two quarters of negative growth. But I see on Twitter, Biden boom is now trending because they're going to overplay this because they can't help themselves. we got to take a break. Another hour coming up. Dr. Mark Siegel will be here when we return on this Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on this Friday. Thank you very much for being here. Our middle out of three hours between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free of charge, always right there for you on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow us on social media. Fox News alert as we head into this middle hour. The Dow closes up today 76 points, ending at 32,803. Joining us now is Fox News medical correspondent Dr. Mark Siegel, author of the book COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science. Doctor, good to have you here. Always great to be with you, Guy. How are you? I'm doing well. We were just chatting in the last hour with Peter Ducey, and he told us that President Biden has again tested positive for COVID. Mild, minor symptoms, that's all good. 
But this is, what, 13, 14 days of positives where he was negative for a while, seemed to be doing well, then tested positive again. Is this unusual, the amount of time that we're talking about here? Well, the part that I wasn't familiar with or, or they're not being totally revealing about is the issue of symptoms. You know, they've, they've been transparent about test positivity, but not about symptoms. And what, what's revealing about what Peter is saying is that they're talking about symptoms. I'll tell you why that's important. I'm seeing a lot of elderly patients with Paxlovid rebound. I've said on the air multiple times what I think that is. I don't think it's the drug. I think it's the virus still lurking around somewhere. And then it re- reappears when, you're, when your course is done, especially, I've seen it especially in elderly patients. If the president was still having symptoms when he started having a rebound, I don't understand why he wouldn't have been treated with a second course of Paxlovid. I don't care that much about the test continuing to be positive, Guy, because that's a matter of isolation, maybe, but it, but it also can be double-checked by doing a PCR and seeing exactly how infective you are. There's a way to test that. There's a test within a test that I could do to see how infectious and how contagious you are. I don't understand why he didn't get a second course. I never understood why he didn't get the monoclonal antibodies. I don't understand why the president's doctor hasn't been talking to us. Yeah, that's all kind of a little bit weird. And you said the test within the test. You'd think they could probably get that furnished for the president of the United States, just a guess. So it's something that we're watching, and we're hoping that it remains mild and it just goes away. That's likely to happen. It's just sort of dragged on a little longer than certainly I had expected. Dr. Siegel, I want to ask you about this on monkeypox. I did a whole monologue about it yesterday. I wrote about it today at townhall.com. I think I'm starting to hear from friends and family, people who are at extremely low risk for monkeypox, getting very concerned about it because I think that the public health bureaucracy is not communicating accurately or clearly with people about who is most at risk and why. And one example of this, I saw a reporter at Bloomberg was on an HHS call or some sort of press conference about this, about the issue and the outbreak. And one of the pieces of advice, one of the elements of guidance given to these reporters and to the public generally was to, quote, avoid large gatherings. He writes, this is Josh Wingrove of Bloomberg. That was one of the messages that got tossed out on this ongoing HHS monkeypox call. And he says, based on the data, it seems like they're just using a, a euphemism here for a particular category of gathering, which would be like, you know, sex parties or giant raves and that kind of thing. But people don't necessarily know that. And they say, oh, gosh, anyone can get it. It's skin to skin. Should I be shaking hands? Should I not be going to large gatherings like a sporting event? I feel like maybe there's not an accurate picture being painted, maybe for political reasons or political correctness. And I just don't know if that's serving the public good. I'm trying to put that diplomatically. You have expressed that extremely well. And as you know, I've written books on fear. So let's start with the hysteria component. Unless you describe the risk accurately, you breed fear and hysteria. And I don't know if the reason for not describing the risk accurately is political or not. It certainly was with HIV, wasn't it? It was it was a time when when gay people were stigmatized. And I would be very disappointed if that were recurring now. But let's be really careful. Let's be really accurate about this. Ninety five percent of cases or more 
are are among gay men or bisexual men. This is this is that's the category that needs the most focus. That's the group of people that needs the vaccine right now. Where is the vaccine? Twenty million doses in Denmark discarded. We only have we only have we're, we may get a million doses over the next couple of weeks. Hospitals still don't have them. I'm being told that calling it a public health emergency will help. I don't know. My comment is we don't need more czars. We need more vaccines. And we need T-pox, which is the treatment, to be readily available. But to your point, it is not something that has leaked out into the general population right now where you have to be afraid to go to a barbecue this weekend. It's a very specific. Now, there's a lot more of it, though, than anybody's revealed. So I'll tell you, on the one hand, there's thousands more cases that have been revealed or reported. On the other hand, I would say that it is not rampantly spreading throughout our communities. And the third point is we have a way to stop it, which is the Gineos vaccine. Yes, we just don't have enough of that vaccine, which is really the issue here. You touched on it. I did a whole long series of segments on it yesterday, and it's been human error. It's been government error and incompetence. You know, throwing away doses, giving away doses, saying that we didn't need it, not putting in requests to have the stuff bottled in time, even though we've paid for it and we developed it and we own it. There's no way to get it to people. It's just been, you know, that like bureaucratic red tape on inspections from FDA inspectors. It's been one thing after another with HHS screwing up, not getting vaccine to the people who need it the most. There's a shortage of this vaccine. There's going to be a cliff on the vaccine. And here's HHS, meanwhile, telling a bunch of reporters that Americans should avoid large gatherings, which even the reporters are kind of kind of talking to each other like, uh, are they talking about a very narrow category of gathering, which I would argue should be avoided? And yet you're seeing a debate playing out kind of in the public eye, doctor, of public health experts saying, should we discourage gay and bisexual men from having a bunch of sexual partners right now or going to these types of sex parties or festivals that continue to move forward. And it seems like there's a lot of people who are sort of gun shy to do that for political reasons. And I think a lot of other Americans, we all remember the restrictions. You can't go to church. You can't go to see a loved one. You can't go to a funeral during COVID. I understand it's a different way that that these diseases are transmitted, but it seems like it should not be considered some kind of hate crime or inappropriate to urge a certain group of the population to maybe hold off on certain sexual behaviors until they can get a shot, which admittedly is delayed because of the government's own fault in large measure. That's sort of the way that I come at this. Completely agree with that. That's a very bold and accurate statement. It reminded me of what happened during the COVID pandemic with rallies. It was okay if your group was the one massively rallying, but if it was the other side doing it, you criticized it. That kind of Hypocrisy is exactly at the heart of why public health has not won the day, either with COVID or with monkeypox. Now, it's not about about being afraid to say don't 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 do that if that's what's spreading the virus. And it and you also can't be afraid. You you, you don't have to self justify by making it a larger problem than it is either. You have to define it accurately in scientific and public health terms. Of course, yes. there shouldn't be raves raves right now. Of course, there shouldn't be orgies among groups that are at higher risk without a vaccine. That's for sure. The fact that there's not a vaccine is a disgrace that it isn't widely available.
Yeah, and it's it's not insensitive to say any of those things. It's a government failure, a messaging failure, political correctness, I think, run amok to the point that it's actually harming public health. It just seems crazy. Just tell us the truth and give us correct information. That's what I ask. Dr. Mark Siegel always does that here on The Guy Benson Show. Doctor, always appreciate it. Have a good weekend. And we will be right back with much more after this. I'm Guy Benson. We are back on this Friday. Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida getting some attention this week. Some praise and some criticism from all the usual suspects. He announced that he was suspending a district attorney, a prosecutor in the state, who had announced publicly, very politically, that he was not going to enforce duly enacted laws on abortion, on sex reassignment surgery for children. This DA, this prosecutor did not like the laws that were being passed and therefore did not want to abide by them and was not going to enforce them. And he made a big political announcement preening about what he was not going to do in dereliction of his actual duty, his job description. And so DeSantis said, "Okay, you are suspended. You no longer have that position. We are going to put that into a process and we're going to have someone in there who will actually do the job. And I know some people, of course, are calling this an abuse of power. No, the abuse is the prosecutor. This is the job that you do. You faithfully execute the laws. You enforce the laws. This is your sworn duty. And if you have enough of a problem with the law, like a 15-week abortion ban is so appalling to you that you refuse to do your job, then your position is not to decide and announce publicly that you're not going to do the job anymore while remaining in the position, you resign. If you can't enforce the law as a prosecutor, resign. And if you want to go run for office as a Democrat and become a lawmaker and try to change the laws, go for it. But don't abuse your power. Don't abuse the position to do this. So DeSantis, in my view, totally in the right. Whether you agree with DeSantis on the actual issues of abortion and trans kids or whatever, it's the principle. There's an interesting op-ed in the New York Post today by Maude Marone. She's a former public defender, a liberal. She's running for Congress as a Democrat. She's also very anti-woke, which makes her sort of refreshing among Democrats, but she is not a conservative. And her New York Post op-ed says, DeSantis did what Hochul won't, boot a DA who won't do their job. She writes, on Thursday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did what New York Governor Hochul won't, recall a prosecutor who refuses to do his job. DeSantis suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren, stating Warren, quote, flagrantly violated his oath of office and placed himself, quote, above the law in announcing he would not prosecute laws with which he disagreed. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg did the exact same thing when he announced in a day one memo that he would not prosecute felony armed robbery in most cases and instead charge only a class A misdemeanor. New Yorkers were rightly outraged at Bragg's decision to look the other way and make it easier for criminals to prey on hardworking citizens. Bragg withdrew the memo but clearly did not change the opinions that informed it in the first place. Mayor Adams and the police commissioner want a special state legislative session to fix the bail laws, which are crazy. 
New York City residents are begging for change. Governor Hochul isn't listening. Why would she? Asks Maude Marone, a Democrat. New Yorkers take the subway, see the problems. Hochul is flying around the state in a helicopter. Everything looks great up there. And by the way, she's not wrong at all that New York's bail laws are nuts. Here's another story from the Post. Accused Times Square slasher set free on violent robbery charges days before the attack. The creep accused of slashing an Asian woman in Times Square with a box cutter. She needed 19 stitches from this assault. He had been arrested for a violent robbery just days before the random attack in Times Square. But a lax Queens judge let him walk free, prosecutors are saying. The 30-year-old suspect was cut loose on supervised release, obviously not well-supervised, because he had committed a violent robbery a few days earlier, then he got a box cutter and slashed this woman at random in Times Square. This individual had multiple convictions and 30 prior arrests. And this system just keeps letting these people back out onto the street over and over again, where they reoffend and too often escalate, and people end up maimed, wounded, hurt, or dead. It's crazy. But that's the system in New York City. Because of progress, because of equity, because of fairness, because of justice. This is what they call, these are their buzzwords to describe their failure. And in Los Angeles, relatedly, you've got George Gascon facing a recall campaign, just like Chisa Boudin got taken out by in San Francisco. Gascon is just as bad as Boudin. He's one of the worst of these Soros guys anywhere in the country. And crime has spiked because of this exact mentality where criminals are coddled, where the laws aren't rigorously enforced, where almost like entire categories of crimes aren't prosecuted virtually at all, and you've got this free-for-all. With a lot of violent crime and then looting and petty crime, it's just a mess in Los Angeles. And this is the legacy, this is the consequence of George Gascon's left-wing, pro-criminal approach to prosecution. The editors of the Los Angeles Times, a very liberal newspaper, obviously, they have put an editorial out defending Gascon against the recall, saying he shouldn't be recalled, and asserting that it's, quote, absurd to allege that his approach to law enforcement has made any appreciable difference on crime in that county since he took office, which I think unto itself is absurd. There's a reason why more than 90% of the prosecutors in his office are backing the recall. They see what's happening. The people see what's happening. It's just insulting people's intelligence to pretend that everything's fine, and even if it's not fine, it has nothing to do with the soft-on-crime or pro-crime district attorney who's letting people walk and reoffend and bringing down sentencing and all this stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, none of that really has an impact on crime, and it's absurd to think that it does. Keep George Gascon in his position. That is what the elitist, out-of-touch, sneering, arrogant editors at the Los Angeles Times think. They endorsed Gascon in the first place, and they really are tripling down on this failure 
because they are cloistered ideologues. They believe in these theories like college students, and no matter how badly they are failing in real life and harming people every single day, the editors are clinging to that failure because of this ideology that they put above everything else. And they have to tell you that it's really not that bad out. They're effectively peeing on the people of Los Angeles and telling them that it's raining and expecting people to buy that. Well, good luck. Here we have another alliance of the press and left-wing politicians hurting the interests of citizens and really doing a grave disservice to public safety. And it's not something that's just been invented. It's something that's playing out before the very eyes of the people of Los Angeles every day. And I hope an insulting newspaper editorial like this won't move the needle one bit. Trust your eyes. Trust the numbers. Trust reality. Don't trust Gascon and his cronies at the editorial board of the Los Angeles Times. That's the crime blotter on The Guy Benson Show from coast to coast. We'll break. We'll come right back. Lighten things up on a Friday. Little sports. ESPN's Jeff Passan up next. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. From Nashville, Tennessee today, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. Joining us now is ESPN senior MLB insider Jeff Passan. In addition to his columns on ESPN.com, Jeff regularly appears on SportsCenter and Get Up. He provides updates on all the late-breaking news in Major League Baseball, of which there have been many this week with the trade deadline coming and going. Jeff, always good to have you here. Welcome back. Always a pleasure to be with you, Guy. How are you? I am well. Are you well-rested? Have you slept at all? Well, um, if, if we're being honest here, I didn't sleep much at all during the <laughs> trade deadline, and... Uh, then when the deadline was over, I came back to an Airbnb I'm at with my family where uh, my son was sent home from camp with COVID. And so he commandeered the room that uh, my wife and I were in. She took uh, a bed in another room, and I'm on the couch right now. So the answer to that is no. I'm sleeping terribly. But wow. I appreciate you asking. Thank it's you. going well. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all going well. So now we've gotten a little insight into the, uh, the passing household. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's an MLB insider. We are now all Jeff Passan family insiders, apparently, based on that scoop that we just got, some of the intel. Jeff, before we talk about what's been happening in Major League Baseball and some of these massive deals, I've been asking a few of my guests about this this week, and I'd imagine you probably have some thoughts as someone who chose to go into sports journalism for a living. Just the reflection that you might have on the legacy, the life of Vin Scully, who passed away this past week at the age of 94 as an icon, not just in the Dodgers organization for many decades, but I think for baseball fans and sports fans generally in the U.S. for many years. Uh, I'm on TV now, but uh, at my heart, I am a writer. And I always felt a kinship with Vin Scully because Vin Scully was on TV and on the radio, but he had the soul of a writer, of a poet, of somebody who could do with words what few, not just in sports broadcasting, but life can do in terms of painting a picture, 
telling a story. And that's what I always appreciated about Vin Skelly. It was that when something was playing out in front of your very eyes, he not only told you what it was, but he added to it. And sometimes it was with colorful anecdotes, and sometimes it was with insight and knowledge gleaned from doing this for more than 65 years. And sometimes it was just the perfect words for the perfect moment. And the, the best part of Vince Scully as a broadcaster, I think, was just how spare he could be. In big moments, he wanted the pictures to tell the story because they could do it better than he could. And it takes a great amount of confidence to shut up sometimes, right? Like silence when you're broadcasting can be even better than the words that are coming out of the broadcaster's mouth. And for Vin Scully to do that, uh, to have to have that restraint, uh, it just takes such confidence in yourself and uh, that was earned because he was uh, the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. I think that's well said. And he loved allowing the moment to breathe and speak for itself and the roar of the crowd and just that sometimes minimalistic approach I think is rare and clearly was appreciated by many fans. Now, his organization, the Dodgers, they've been kings of the West for a while out there in the National League. But the Padres in San Diego really making a run at this thing, some huge acquisitions. Are the Padres at the level of the Dodgers yet, or does that remain to be seen? Are there still a few more pieces that they need? I do not believe they're at the level of the Dodgers yet, but I do think that they thrust themselves into that upper echelon of teams alongside the Dodgers, the Mets, the Braves, the Yankees, and the Astros. It feels like there's really a big six in baseball right now. And Toronto's sort of uh, peering in and trying to crack that door open. But what the Padres did in not just getting Juan Soto and Josh Bell and what my esteemed Hall of Fame colleague Tim Kirchin called the biggest trade of all time, uh, they went out and got Brandon Drury, who's been a fantastic infielder outfielder this year and has a lot of power. And they went out and got Josh Hader, who, you know, uh, absent a, a two outing spell in mid July has been the best closer in baseball uh, this year and for the last half decade or so. And, and so what the Padres do guy is that they target big fish. Um, you know, there, there's the philosophy of team building where depth is the most important thing and you need to have it. And look, it, it works, right? The, the Dodgers depth has been their hallmark. And they've only, you know, in recent years added more superstars, added Mookie Betts, added Freddie Freeman, uh, added Trey Turner, Max Scherzer at the trade deadline last year. They've, they've gone that route increasingly in recent years, but depth has been uh, really the, the the thing that they focused on most. The Padres have taken the opposite tack. They are a star-laden team. They've got Tatis. They've got Manny Machado. They've got you Darvish. They went and traded for Joe Musgrove and, now bringing Juan Soto on takes them to a different level. Is it a level enough where they can beat the Dodgers and the other elite teams in the National League? Well, yes, they can beat them. Maybe. But I still think they may be just a smidge behind. Uh, but it's baseball, guy. You know the sport very well, and you know that in a five- or seven-game series, the best team doesn't always win. That's right. And Soto, so I live in D.C., Soto, of course, uh, a lot of that coverage locally, I was paying at least some attention to it. 
and a lot of morose Nationals fans. The team has been lousy since they won the World Series, and here's this huge, young, incredible five-tool star now leaving for the West Coast. But, you know, who among us, Jeff, has not turned down $440 million at some point in our lives, right? I mean, you know, you have that moment, and sometimes you just have to say no. Uh, In all seriousness, though, just an extraordinary decision, someone betting on himself saying, no, I want to go win this huge amount of money isn't enough for me. And I feel like someone else who's really bet on himself and is going to pay off big time for him is the star of the New York Yankees, Aaron Judge, who was offered a boatload of money, probably not quite enough in my view, before the season. And boy, is he putting on a show in this potential you know, walk season for him. What do you think the Yankees might have to do in terms of backing up the Brinks, you know, the Brinks truck for this guy to keep him and do you think the Yankees are going to do it? I mean, I feel like the fans would revolt if they don't. But, boy, Judge is going to make this painful for them, the, the, the franchise, that well, is. And, and you know what? Uh, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with players going out and believing in themselves and taking that risk. And, listen, all of us have different risk matrices, right? Uh, Juan Soto looked at his situation and said, uh, I'm better than a $29.3 million a year player, which is what the $440 million over 15 years would have amounted to. And I'm willing to take the risk. And Aaron Judge did the same thing uh, in, in a lesser sense. You know, the Yankees offered him $31.5 million over seven years, $213.5 million. And Look, that's a lot of money. It's more money than either you or I or 99.9% of people listening to this show will make in their lives. And it's difficult to say no to something like that. But he believed that he was worth more than that. And you know what? He's right. Uh, if the Yankees want to re-sign Aaron Judge, the number is going to have to start with a three. And it's going to have to start there because Aaron Judge has played himself into that echelon of player into that echelon of salary. Uh, he deserves every penny he's going out and getting because to do this in New York, in your walk year, is really an incredible feat. And I think you're spot on when it comes to Yankee fans. Aaron Judge is the heir apparent to Derek Jeter in New York. He is the guy you want, if you're a fan, in pinstripes for his entire career. And the Yankees, you know, I was talking with someone with the Yankees earlier this year, and it was right around the time where he, you know, he turned down their contract offer. And I said, what if he goes out and has a huge year? And the response was, if he has a huge year, then, you know, we'll we'll pay him for it, and and he'll deserve it. And he has made himself a hundred-some-odd million dollars this year uh, with just that great (laughs) year because – the, the Yankees are not going to be the only team that's in on the bidding. If Aaron Judge is out there as a free agent, you don't have to give up players. You just have to give up money to go and get him. If you're a winning ball club, that's exactly what you're going to do. That's right. And I've seen some fans of other teams deriding the Yankee Stadium chance of MVP for Aaron Judge, saying, oh, he's got all this talent around him. If you watch the Yankees closely, and I do, relatively speaking, This is a completely different team without Aaron Judge. They are nowhere near the level that they're at. And frankly, I think they haven't been playing that well, even dating back to before the All-Star break, especially against better competition. They have not looked great. Judge has almost single-handedly kept them comfortably in first place in the AL East. 
I am eager to see how they're playing in September. Not feeling great as a Yankee fan at the moment, despite the gaudy numbers, because I hate to say it, I think the team in the AL still to beat is Houston because the Yankees can't seem to do it consistently. Do you agree with that? Last question and then a follow-up. Is there a team out there that's sort of a dark horse that you want to highlight before we let you go? Um, I'm not going to say Houston is the team to beat. I'm also not going to say that the Yankees are the team to beat. I feel like they are extremely evenly matched, and both of them got better at the deadline. You know, the the Astros went out and got Christian Vasquez and Trey Mancini, upgraded their catcher in first base, two of their weak spots. They got Will Smith. They didn't have a left-hander in their bullpen before. Now they do. So this is a very good team that got better. The Yankees got Frankie Montas, who's probably slotting in as their number two starter at this point. They got Andrew Benintendi to fill a hole in left field. Scott Efros and Lou Trevino in the bullpen. Like, they got better. So, uh, man, I'm I'm not looking forward to making a pick if the two do face off in the ALCS because – that's a, an awfully difficult one. I am looking forward to them playing one another, though. If there is a team that's going to be a spoiler, though, guy, I think it may be the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, listen, they didn't make any big splashes at the deadline, but their lineup is deep. Their front-end starting pitching with Kevin Gossman, Alf Manoa, and even though his numbers aren't great, Jose Barrios is extremely talented. And, uh, you know, their bullpen, it's, it's improved a little bit. It may still be their weakness, but getting Anthony Bass and Zach Pop to go along with Yumi Garcia uh, and Adam Simber and Jordan Romano, uh, Tim Mays has been pitching awesome lately. It's deep enough that I think they could make a lot of noise in October if they catch a heater. I'll just point out that my Mets fan friends would be screaming at me if I didn't give them a shout-out. They look awfully good. They've got some pieces coming back, and they could make a real run as well. I will just make that point so I don't get into trouble with my buddies uh, who wear blue and orange. Jeff Passan, our guest, senior MLB insider at ESPN. Jeff, we always appreciate you making some time for us, especially in a very eventful week in your line of work. We really uh, thank you for that, and good luck on the home front there with the kid with COVID, the whole thing. Get some rest and hope your, is it your son or your daughter recovers quickly? Uh, it's my son, and uh, I will be spending another delightful evening guy on the couch. Can't wait. <laughs> All right. It's like shades of college, right? So it's fine. You're still, I guess we're still young enough, but not for long. The back starts to ache, uh, but you deserve that rest after all the reporting you've been doing. I've seen you all over ESPN these uh, last number of days. Jeff, thank you. Pleasure, my guy. Thanks for having me. And the Guy Benson Show resumes right after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. I wanted to bring you a few thoughts on the difficult issue of abortion that has been front and center now for months in American politics for all the obvious reasons. There is the Kansas referendum that we talked about earlier in the week that the left and the media are very excited about. And I would just point out that even though I think for pro-lifers it was a setback and disappointing, I read the way the actual question was phrased on the ballot, and it was incomprehensible. Like, I'm an educated person. I am certainly literate. I had to read it three times to figure out what the hell it was even saying. So that was unhelpful. Opponents were able to frame the whole thing as yes or no on a ban, and we know that blanket bans are unpopular. 
just like the opposite fringe is unpopular. Kansas also already had some significant abortion restrictions in place that I think a lot of people are just sort of pretending aren't there. Heavy restrictions after 20 weeks. I think you could easily get more support at 15 or 12 weeks in a state like Kansas based on public polling. But they already had some of those limitations in place, plus parental consent laws, ultrasound requirements, no public financing, no taxpayer funding of abortion. And I see California and New York politicians out there celebrating it and elite media celebrating it. I wonder if any of them would agree to have the abortion laws in Kansas implemented in, say, New York or California. The answer would be no, because... It's not nearly permissive enough in Kansas. It's not nearly, frankly, pro-abortion enough. Which brings us to Senator Elizabeth Warren. Back during the heat of the Dobbs controversy at the Supreme Court, I came on the air here and I addressed something about the Democrats' so-called codification of Roe versus Wade bill, which was nothing of the sort. It was much more radical, much more extreme than that, that even pro-choice Republicans wanted no part of because it was just way out there, ghoulish, grotesque. And people were asking, well, Democrats have had majorities a few different times, including big ones in recent decades. Why didn't they use those opportunities in case this ever happened at the court to codify Roe in legislation? And I argued that if they had actually put together a bill that looked roughly like what a true codification of Roe versus Wade would be, they couldn't pass it because there'd be enough people within their own party who would object because it was not pro-abortion enough. The Democrats have blown way past Roe versus Wade. Sure enough, this week, Susan Collins, a Republican, some Democrats got together. There's a bipartisan bill to codify Roe. It is definitely much more permissive on abortion than I would support. I think it is still out of step with the American people and sort of the mainstream. I think there might be some sort of a compromise legislation on abortion. This isn't it. It's a lot less horrific than the bill the Democrats have voted on and almost every single one of them have voted for with just a handful of exceptions. It's better, but still bad in my view. I would never support this bipartisan Legislation, although it is much closer to actually codifying Roe on substance. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, Elizabeth Warren, one of the lefties in the Senate, has already preemptively come out and said she would be a no. She would be against it. It doesn't go nearly far enough. She said it's barely an improvement over what we have right now, which I think just on substance is wrong. But I think this is a validation and a vindication of my analysis, which is the Democrats actually haven't voted to try to codify Roe versus Wade because enough of them are so extreme on the issue of abortion that that would not be enough for them. It is not pro-abortion enough for their tastes. And Elizabeth Warren has raised her hand and said, yep, you're right. And she's not the only one, which is why I think this bill is doomed and why there's a lot of extremism, unfortunately, alive and well on the Democratic Party on this issue. The media only likes to focus on some unpopular elements on the other side, for obvious reasons, because they're activists. But still, this was something that I wanted to draw to your attention on the issue, and Elizabeth Warren very helpfully illustrated the point for me. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn joins me. I'm in Tennessee. Why not? That's straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you for being here. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, although I'm in Central Time. I'm in that zone because I'm in Nashville, Tennessee for a weekend wedding. Looking forward to that wherever you are. Hope you're enjoying the almost weekend. We have an hour left together here on the show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free every single day. If you can't listen live, all sorts of ways to do that, of course, we encourage that, including through our partners at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. GuyBensonShow.com is the one-stop shop, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. And the happy hour is brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink. As always, our friends over there have a fantastic product. You really should try it if you're 21-plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. They're expanding all over the country for very good reason. People are trying it. They are loving it. We've been telling you about it for years. If you haven't tried it yet, give it a shot. TheLongDrink.com to find out where they are sold near you. TheLongDrink.com. With us now, appropriately, given where I'm doing the show from today, is U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. She's author of the book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman. And it's great to have you back, Senator. I am absolutely thrilled to join you and welcome to Nashville. Thank you very much. I want to start with this. And It's been a little discouraging, at least from my perspective, you'd probably agree, to watch the Democrats doing what they're doing on tax increases and spending. And I think a very destructive bill that they appear poised to advance and pass now that Kirsten Sinema has sort of extracted her pound of flesh and she's on board. And the way they're trying to do this under the guise of inflation reduction, I think, is just ridiculous and insulting. And one of the silver linings to this, Senator, is that apparently the American people see through it. There's a YouGov poll that just came out I saw yesterday where they asked people what the impact on inflation would be from this legislation that the Democrats are ludicrously billing as reducing inflation. A plurality of Americans, 36 percent, said actually it will increase inflation. Another 23 percent said it will not change inflation at all. So you add those two up, it's about 60% of the country. Only 12% of respondents nationally in the poll actually believe that the Inflation Reduction Act will reduce inflation. And I guess I'm just gratified to see that the manipulation of words and trying to pull a fast one like this with this, I think, really sort of lowbrow manipulation, it just isn't working very well if they only get to 12% of people believing the name of their bill. Well, you're right about that. And this is more like the inflation turbocharge bill because of what it is going to do 
to inflation. You can look at the Joint Tax Committee. You can look at the Ben Wharton study. You can read from economist after economist. And they will tell you when you increase taxes, when you take more money out of the economy, that what you're going to see is this inflation rate increase. And we know this is going to happen. The recession that we are in the middle of, and um, people feel that recession. They see this recession around them. I had somebody here today attend the city and look at me again and say, Marsha, you know, everything is costing more. It is astounding to me how much things are costing. And, you know, Guy, we've just been through tax-free weekend and getting everything together for kids to go back to school. And so many people, it was the first time in a few months they had looked at buying kids clothes and shoes and school supplies and things of that nature. And the increase has shocked them. They're very surprised by that. So then to hear this bill that is going to spend $739 billion is going to raise $313 billion in taxes, put $64 billion into Obamacare and $369 billion into the Green New Deal. People are going, no, no, no. I didn't believe you about infrastructure. I didn't believe you about chips. Everything you're doing makes my life worse. I'm not going to believe you on this. And then, of course, the IRS provisions as well, beefing up the IRS to go after people and audit a bunch of folks. And I see some leftists saying, well, the only people who have to worry about that are tax cheats. Uh, these people must not have ever interacted with the IRS. There are people who are law-abiding taxpayers whose lives can be turned upside down with what the IRS puts them through, and now there's going to be a lot more agents and auditors out there going after families, going after small businesses, going after farms and that sort of thing. And that's one of the other ways that they're going to try to raise a lot of revenue to pay for some of this new spending that you're talking about. And you referenced The Economist. I saw a story today that I believe it was over 200 economists signed a letter saying, based on their expertise, they believe this bill will increase inflation. And that is very much one of the concerns. You mentioned the word recession that the White House has not wanted to use. They've redefined the word. I've made the point, Senator, that you can say, hey, look, there's a bright spot in the economy, which is low unemployment and good job growth. That does not mean that we didn't just have two negative quarters of economic growth in a row. And when that happens, two straight contractions, that's a recession. You can point out some of the bright spots without making up new terms or denying reality that's in front of you between real wages going down, between inflation, which, of course, contributes to that problem, the negative growth that might finally start to bounce back, and then some of the other silver linings You've got overall still an economy where most Americans feel like they're being left behind. A majority are living paycheck to paycheck. The president's approval ratings are poor on the economy for good reason. But we got a very good jobs number today. Some difficult stuff on the labor force number. That's a little bit concerning. Wages, again, a huge concern. What's your response when you hear from the White House, from the president, from Democrats, from a lot of people in the media saying, see, a big month again on job growth proves that we were right. This isn't really a recession. 
to them, I say they may feel like they can change the definition of the word recession. They may think they're going to be able to say, okay, this isn't a recession because we have a jobs growth number. And technically, look at this. And technically, look at that. But people are not buying this because they know what is happening in their personal economy. And they know that at the end of the month, they have less money left than they did when Donald Trump was president and we had tax cuts. And they also know they had wage growth during that time. And there were record numbers of people that were lifted out of poverty during that time. Now, that's what people are living. That is what they're experiencing. And when they hear people say, well, we're going to redefine the word recession or what a recession is. You know what, Guy? They are just absolutely laughing at them. It's the same thing with what you were saying about the IRS. This bill is going to double the size of the IRS. So everybody's going to have their own personal IRS agent that's going to be tracking them 24-7, 365. And people are going, no, wait a minute. You're not just going after tax cheats. You're going after all the small businesses. And here's one of the things I've had some small businesses call me and discuss. They're very concerned about how this is going to treat all the pass-through entities. The small businesses that are organized as an LLC or they file on their 1040, they um, are a partnership or a family business. And they're saying, look, if we grow our business, we're going to be penalized for growing our business and growing jobs. Oh, I think it's a huge problem, and that's why so many people are speaking out against this bill, and there are many components of it that I think are not only economically destructive, problematic, will not help solve problems, will do the opposite, but also are eminently politically attackable and assailable as well. And I think Republicans who are running in some really key races should be paying attention on where they can come after some of the Democrats who are going to vote for this thing. They're all going to be required to line up and walk the plank on it. They need every single vote. It looks like they'll probably get it. And that creates another political opportunity, at least in my view, for the opposition, for the GOP. Senator, you've been on this show many times through the years. You are a China hawk. I think it's fair to call you that. I think we need more China hawks, frankly. What did you think of Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan? A lot of Republicans have been praising her, something they don't do very often. I have been one of them. I'm at least a conservative who appreciates that she did not back down and buckle to the will of China and Beijing, even though it sounded like the Biden administration was kind of trying to force her hand a little bit to second guess the decision and maybe not show up in Taipei. She did anyway. Where do you come down in that discussion? I I have praised her uh, for keeping her word, for making this trip, for standing with Taiwan and showing that solidarity with Taiwan. Uh, We cannot let the Chinese Communist Party set our foreign policy. And I think it is so important to realize that the Chinese Communist Party is – They're carrying out human rights violations against Chinese people every single day. 
And our argument is not with the Chinese people. It is with the CCP and the way they are an authoritarian regime. And for Pelosi to stand up to them, I think, sent a very important message, and I applaud her for it. Senator Blackburn, there was an interesting soundbite this week. The White House press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, said from the podium that, in her mind, the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade was unconstitutional. Now, uh, the Supreme Court gets the final say on that, not the White House press secretary. She kind of got roasted for framing it that way with that formulation. But the issue of abortion is, again, front and center in some ways. Democrats are kind of energized about what happened in Kansas, for example. I mentioned last hour how one of your colleagues, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, she has already rejected a bipartisan bill to codify Roe versus Wade. And as a pro-lifer, I don't support this bipartisan bill. Uh, I know you would not either. It is less horrific than what the Democrats have already voted in favor of that failed, thank goodness, in the U.S. Senate. It passed out of the House with every House Democrat except for one voting yes. Just a radical, radical abortion bill. The bipartisan one that I'm mentioning is less radical, still unacceptable in my mind. But Elizabeth Warren came out and said that she would be a no. She would also oppose this bill because it does not go nearly far enough. And I think there's a lot of progressives saying the same thing. And sadly, I I don't take joy in this, but it strikes me as a very crystal clear illustration that within the Democratic Party, there is a battle between pro-choice people and pro-abortion people. And the pro-abortion contingent has a huge magnified impact on the Democratic Party, even though it represents a very small percentage of the American people. What do you make of someone like Senator Warren saying that she wouldn't even support pro-choice legislation because it's not really extreme in its total support for abortion enough in her mind? Well, and just look at how far the Democrats have gone. What they want is abortion 24-7. They want it up to the point of birth. They want it paid for by the federal government anytime, any place. This is what they want. Now, that is a policy that is in line with China, North Korea, and other authoritarian regimes. What so many people have said, and with the Dobbs ruling, this sends abortion back to the states, back to the states, and the states will make that decision how they want to proceed. And you're going to have different states have different approaches. But this is an issue for the states, but I think it is telltale on the Democrats that they have gone to the point that they want abortion allowed up to the point of birth. Yep, for any reason, no restrictions paid for by tax dollars. It's just atrocious. I mean, it's really bad. And and I try to always draw a distinction because I know I have listeners who are pro-choice. I think there's a difference between pro-choice and moderate people who might be willing to have some conversations about limitations and where does the line get drawn, and then just pro-abortion activists who embrace the position, the stance that you just described, which is 
shared by about 10 to 20 percent of the public, but almost all elected Democrats these days, which I think is a very sad thing. There's a very powerful special interest and media backing, which is also crucial to it, that has brought us to that point. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a conservative. I just I don't want to go anywhere near that. Senator Marshall Blackburn. From Tennessee, the state where I happen to be broadcasting from today, I'm in Nashville. She is our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, great to talk to you. Have a good weekend. You also, and welcome to Tennessee. Bye-bye now. Always love being here. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We are back. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. We talked a bit earlier about New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles. Well, let's round things out with San Francisco. don't want to leave them out of the equation. A couple stories to draw to your attention. Number one, the president of the San Francisco Fed getting some attention. She reportedly earns well over $400,000 a year. And she was just sort of boasting on the issue of inflation that she doesn't feel that pain. She said, quote, I don't feel the pain of inflation anymore. I see prices rising, but I have enough. Oh, that might be true. She could be rich, and the rich generally are the most insulated from inflation. I'm not sure that's a great message to be putting out there with so many people struggling and so many people hurting. Some pretty strong Marie Antoinette let them eat cake vibes from one of these elites out in San Francisco. And another one. Chesa Boudin, who is now the former district attorney in San Francisco, one of those Soros-backed, soft-on-crime, almost pro-criminal prosecutors, he, of course, was thrown out of office by the people of San Francisco in a recall election. He tweeted yesterday, I am choosing to put my family first. I will not be running for office in 2022. I hate to break it to you, Chesa. But you did run for office in 2022. You had to run a campaign, a recall campaign, and you lost. In fact, you got your butt kicked by roughly 20 points as a leftist in San Francisco. It takes a lot. It's like he wants to be congratulated for how big and magnanimous he's being and how he's putting his family first. He's really a family guy, so he won't be running in 2022. Yeah, he ran, he got crushed, and the people of San Francisco made that decision for him. But I guess he's trying to frame it as his own choice. Or I guess he's not going to run for another office. I guess we can count that as one of those small blessings. The Guy Benson Show continues in this happy hour next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Friday Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. And earlier today, we caught up with our colleague and friend Peter Ducey, White House correspondent at Fox News. A lot to chat about with him. He did some tangling with the White House this week, as usual. Here's part of that conversation. President Biden, at least as of yesterday, we're told still testing positive for COVID, right? So he had COVID a couple weeks ago. Then he took Paxlovid. He recovered. He tested negative. Then there was this sort of rebound, which happened sometimes, and he has been in isolation ever since. Do we have any update today? We'll ask Dr. Siegel maybe next hour. Is this unusual? Because it's been a while now that he's been battling COVID. He tested positive again this afternoon. We had been led to believe from Dr. Fauci, 
uh, ahead of time when the president was sick and taking Paxlovid that it was possible for a rebound case, but that it was very unlikely. And yet here we are, sixth day in a row that the president has tested positive for for COVID again, the second time. So we know of at least 13 days in the last two and a half weeks that he's had a positive test. I, and they say that he's not going to leave to go anywhere, leave the White House until he tests negative, which I, it's kind of an uncharted uh, territory with these – what the travel rules are uh, because as we've known for years now, it, people can test positive for a long time. Uh, even if they're not infectious, but they right. are claiming that he's not going to leave until he has a negative test. So uh, maybe that's tomorrow. Maybe it's a little while longer. Don't know. Are they telling you that he's still feeling fine? Because I know some of the, if there's, uh, you know, at least in some of these days, they say like he has virtually no symptoms at all. I They're saying that his cough has almost completely resolved. Uh, but these notes from the doctor are very inconsistent. Two days ago, it said that he did a light workout, which he enjoyed, and that hasn't been in the reports yesterday or today. It just says he's up there working. And so we're led to believe from the doctor uh, who is treating him that he's doing better, but still positive for COVID. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, you have been answering or asking rather a number of questions, as is your job, as is your want at some of these press briefings. And you got into it a little bit yesterday with John Kirby, who's kind of almost like the uh, de facto secondary press secretary at this point, almost like a, a goalie 1A and 1B in hockey where you can't decide who the starter is. So they're kind of platooning the thing. I know it's still technically Kareem Jean-Pierre, but they've got Kirby out there an awful lot. And I know they're saying it's because it's national security stuff, so they want him briefing on that. But, you know, he generally, I think, is more coherent and smooth than she is. I think she is perhaps a lovely person, but is very bad at this job. You don't have to comment on that. My impression watching her from a distance, you have a lot more up-close and personal interaction with her uh, by nature of your work, but you asked a question about what the president was doing and not doing with some of his time since he's in isolation, not going anywhere. And Kirby took exception to the way that you asked one of these questions. Listen to cut nine. I know you said that there is not a, a call scheduled with Xi. Is there a reason why? Because President Biden's known him for decades. Yeah. He's got a lot of free time up there in the residence this week. He doesn't have free time. He, he's, Is there a he's, reason he can't he, just pick up the phone and he's call? He's been working all the way through his illness, quite frankly, Peter. So that's a little bit insulting. And um, as for a it's call, it is. To, to it is. So he said it was insulting. You can address that in a moment. But he also jumped down the throat of another reporter. He was upset about something else in cut 10 also yesterday. You said that our policy for China has been consistent. Your name is Simon, right? Yeah, I really si want to Simon? Ask you Simon? I'm Simon? I'm trying to ask you this question. Simon. If, if you allow me to ask you the question. Sir, I'm going gonna, gonna to call on this man. Now, sir, listen now. I've been polite to you, but I expect a little bit of respect in return. You know, you know where we are? This is the White House press briefing room, and you need to be more respectful. I'm going to call on this reporter. All right, so a little surly, uh, a little... A little grumpy, perhaps, yesterday from Kirby. He didn't lose his temper, but he thought you were out of line. He called the other guy disrespectful. Was there something in the water at the White House yesterday, Peter? 
I I don't know about that, but I wasn't trying to suggest that the president isn't doing anything. My full interview with Peter Ducey available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the entire show, on demand, no charge, every day, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. well, it's time for the reveal. Did Christine reunite with the Times Square psychic from yesterday? We'll ask her next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on a Friday on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Bonus Benson coming up over the weekend, as always. It's always free of charge every day, on demand. And if you're listening on the broadcast, not the podcast, you just heard our bump-in song for this segment, a jam by Lady Gaga, as I will be heading to a Lady Gaga concert in D.C. on Monday, and I am pretty excited about that. I've always liked her music. She's kind of eccentric, obviously. She puts on quite a show from what I hear. She can also really sing and perform. So it will be a spectacle with a lot of talent involved. And I'm in. She's been cranking out hits since I was in college, just after college, I think. When did Just Dance? That was her big breakthrough hit, I think. When did that come out? I feel like I was in college. I might have still been in school. Anyway, that's been a while now. Was Just Dance 2009? Wow. Okay, so that had been just after I was out of school, so in my early 20s. But it's just been a parade of hits ever since. So I will report back, I guess, on Tuesday. We'll probably talk more about it on Monday, but I digress. I, it's shameful, actually, that I have spent this much time talking about a topic other than the crucial reveal. So if you missed it yesterday, you can go back, a free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. To the home stretch, this segment yesterday, producer Christine had convinced herself in her mind that through a series of what she calls signs, she was meant to get a psychic reading from a woman, a psychic, who approached her in Times Square, claiming to have a message from Christine's late father. And I, of course, uh, was skeptical, to put it lightly, on all of this. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Dan was laughing out loud at Christine. Wyatt was beside himself laughing at Christine, although he tried to pretend that he wasn't. Her husband, Bobby, also laughed at her, so she was pretty mad about this, and she was convinced that there was something to it, and she had this visceral, physical reaction. And the deal that I guess she ended up striking with this uh, psychic woman was that if she ran into her again the next day, she would pay for the reading, because obviously this is not just out of the kindness of this person's heart. She's out there, like, you know, hitting the streets for business, going up to random strangers and making vague, general, provocative statements that would apply to many, many people, hoping to draw someone in and extract money from them. And Christine became almost her latest victim, came very close, but she... Didn't have time at the moment. She said, if I see you again here tomorrow, we'll do it. So, Christine, since you believe in signs and fate and all this stuff, and if this is truly a psychic and a soothsayer who can 
read the future and make mystical things happen. I said, even if you take a slightly different route to your bus through Times Square, if it's meant to be and she has all these powers, she will meet you where you are and deliver this very important message from your father. And I'm just so eager to know whether or not that connection happened yesterday. It did not. And I blame you. Oh, what? It didn't happen? It's your fault. I should it not. It's not my fault. It is your fault. If I had gone the right way, I probably would have run into her. But you said go a few blocks out. So I went, I went two blocks over, two blocks down, and then two blocks back. And I didn't find her. Isn't that weird? What I think is weird is I shouldn't have listened to you. What would have been what meant to be would have been is if I walked the same no. path and she was still there. I changed course. What I just did, what I just did was save you money because it's all a racket. And you changed course barely and your whole I guess belief is that this woman has some mystical powers to hear from dead relatives and impart that information to you, if she's got that kind of power, she can probably find you a block away in New York City if it's real. Yes? No, no, I don't I don't think no. so. I had said I was going to walk by the next day. So I didn't. Maybe she was there waiting for me and I messed up the whole plan. So today, tonight, right when I leave here, I'm going on the right path, and I will keep you updated if I finally get my reading. if this person actually had any of the powers that you, I guess, are willing to believe that she might and cough over cash for whatever nonsense this is going to be, would someone with those types of powers have to be – like accosting strangers in Times Square with these types of attention-getting ploys? Or would people be lining up out her door at her Park Avenue office overlooking, you know, the, the most beautiful vistas in the city because she is so successful and therefore there's just an overwhelming demand for her talents? Like it's it's like when you're walking through a neighborhood, maybe you're on vacation somewhere, and they've got the guy like with a big sign standing or like a sandwich board sign being like, oh, yeah, this restaurant, it's the best food in the city. And you show up and it's basically empty, but oh, there was a guy out there on the street telling you it's the best. Like, is that where you go or you go to the place where you prefer to go to the place that has, you know, reservations booked up months in advance because it's fabulous. I just feel like there's a similar lesson here. I have such a good rebuttal, and I don't even know if I've ever been able to be this right over you before, so here we go. A few months ago, I was um, connected with a celebrity psychic, someone that doesn't really reach out. Somebody reached out to me to connect me with this guy, and I came to you. Now, this is someone that has established himself, has really connected with the dead, is pretty famous. You told me then not to give him money. You said $400 was crazy. Yes. So yes, what it's is crazy. it? Like, he didn't come to me. I got connected to him because, well, A, I wanted him on the show until you poo-pooed that. And you said, no way. 
But then yeah. when I started, yeah, we're not putting quackery on the show. We're not, not doing quacks here. You think every single? Oh, you're going to offend some of your audience right now. What about the psychics that listen to our show? What about the mediums that are out there? Well, no. The look, the psychics and mediums who listen to the show would already know what I was going to say and would have tuned out for the segment as to avoid the triggering. You know, I just want to say you're not the first boss of mine who um, rejected all of this. I once had a psychic when I was a freshman. Yeah, obviously. In, I once had a psychic in, when I was a freshman in college. And I told her that I worked at this makeup store in the mall. So she showed up there because I think she wanted free makeup. And my boss left me a note and said, Christine, your psychic came here. She must not be that good because she didn't know you were off. I mean, QED. That's a pretty good note. I give some credit to the store manager on that one. But I love how you think you've got me, and this Did. is a good oh, rebuttal. Totally. It's not a good rebuttal. Why? No, no. You're like, which, which one is it? Which? See, I am being perfectly consistent, and the consistency is this. I am urging you, Christine, not to waste your money on any psychic because it's ridiculous and you are lighting money on fire if you do it. Whether it's $400 with the exclusive celebrity one who's a better grifter or someone who is a much lower level street con artist and it's 20 or 40 bucks. I don't want you losing money either way because you have bills to pay. You have a child to support. I feel like that's where your money should go, not to this kind of I'll – just, I'll just call it silliness, and I'll be, I'll be nice about it. Can I do one more rebuttal? You could try. You're saying that why should they charge for their talents? Why do you charge for your talent? You're very talented on the radio. It's not You're... a talent. What do you mean? But I'm not making things up and manipulating people. I'm not engaging in what I honestly view as a form of fraud. I really do because it's not real. But I know some people believe differently. I'm just saying it does not seem like a wise use of your money or time and therefore, I am very consistently against you spending money on any of this stuff. So there is no inconsistency or hypocrisy or I support one thing or not the other. It is the same sentiment across the board in this entire matter, in this whole realm of fake mysticism. I just feel like there's an entire community out there um, that I stand with and you are just turning away from and I'm so glad that I you gave me the chance to finally rebut you and make some really good points and I just have one thing to say I won hmm. well maybe you're seeing that in the cards I think most of the rest of us see this very differently and more clearly but you know if, if this is the direction that you're going to go look far be it from me to tell you what to do with your money Right. If you want to throw it all away in Ponzi schemes, right, and you'll be destitute, I'll think that's a bad decision. But it's your life, your choice, your money, your family, and your consequences. So let's see if uh, you magically run into this woman in the spot that you said you would meet her. <laughs> it's like, ooh, what are the chances? Um, and if she's able to get you to give some of your hard-earned cash to her. 
to make something up about your father and pull at your heartstrings. And even if it is completely wrong or ridiculous, you will then go through mental gymnastics to try to figure out a reason why it is meaningful on some level or some sort of special sign from wherever. And I don't know. I, I'm not going to proselytize. I'd say, you know, if, if you want to get into the spiritual realm, I think, you know, maybe maybe church could be a good idea. I'm just, just putting I do that. that out there. I, but let me just tell you. Do you? Yeah, not every Sunday, but yes, I go to church. Well, when was when was because you're Catholic? What, what what time? When was the last time you were in confession? I'm just curious. Oh, confession. Those have to be some doozies. <laughs> it's been a while. I think right before. It's I like, got forgive married. me, Father, for I have sinned. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. How much time do you have? <laughs> Buckle up, Father. <laughs> it's going to be a long one. <laughs> That's that's all I'm saying. But okay, I guess now we need another update on this on Monday, and we we need to make sure that the psychic saga does not go even longer than the Backstreet Boys saga that we did during home stretches for a while there. But I know Wyatt was very eager. Wyatt is on vacation today, and he's tuning in for this segment because he wants to know what happened. And I will we'll all be. You know, walking on eggshells at the edge of our seat waiting for a psychic update from producer Christine on Monday's edition of The Guy Benson Show right here. Thank you for listening. Have a fabulous weekend. We will talk to you then. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.